we consider our study of counting the cost. In order to do that, I want to read again this paragraph that Jesus taught. We heard it last week and considered the theme of the cost of discipleship. And today I want us to use the illustration that Jesus gives as a springboard for our study and our application to our local congregation here. So we're in Luke chapter 14, the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not... While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The theme of Jesus' teaching is self-denial. Self-denial is essential to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the words are strong and purpose purposefully so. Hating father and mother, hating wife and children, hating your own life? Well, this is understood in contrast to our primary love for Christ. So our gratitude and worship and thanksgiving and our love and commitment to Jesus Christ should be so strong that it could almost appear that we hate everything else. But clearly the Bible tells us we're to love husbands, wives, our children. We're to love our neighbor. So Jesus' point isn't love him and hate everything else, nor is it to give away everything, renounce all, and only do spiritual things. No, the point is nothing in our lives should take primary focus like Jesus does. We deny ourselves And we follow him. This is the Christian life. To carry this point of being committed wholly to something, Jesus gives this example. Which of you desiring to build a tower? Now, we're not exactly sure what kind of tower this is. It could be a tower built on the city walls. Because just the previous chapter... Jesus began his teaching by telling about a situation that had happened there in Jerusalem where the tower of Siloam had collapsed and killed 18 people. So obviously that could have been fresh on their minds and Jesus is saying, okay, in order to rebuild that kind of a tower, 
There's going to have to be architectural planning, somebody that knows how to build with the Jerusalem limestone and pull off this project. You need to plan and count the cost so that you can complete it. It may also be a tower that was common in the vineyards on the hillsides around Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus speaks again in a teaching parable unfolding a story talking about a man and his vineyards and how he hires and he describes a tower in the center of the vineyards that would prove to both survey the harvest but also house the groundskeeper. In any case, a big project or a small project, the illustration has merit. It's true. And because the illustration carries a truth we can easily understand, it's used to help us understand this big picture of following Jesus Christ. And his point is, you don't get into this and then decide, oh, I should have thought it through a little bit. Oh, I didn't know it was going to mean that. I didn't know it would cost me that much. No, if you're going to dive into a building project, you'd better know up front how this is going to work and have those contingencies built in. Otherwise, you look pretty foolish when people drive by and see an unfinished project. Likewise, you don't just pray a prayer and claim to be a Christian and then get into it and think, well, I didn't know I, it was this hard. Or I didn't know the world wasn't going to like me when I do what's right. No, sit down and count the cost. This should inform us in our evangelism. It is not our desperate need to get someone to pray a prayer and say something about Jesus. No, our need for them is to understand that they are ruined by sin and that Jesus has come to rescue them. But in his rescuing of them, they, be, they are rescued from being slaves to sin and they become servants to Jesus Christ. Servants to righteousness. It's going to cost you everything. It's just that paying everything to be a follower of Jesus proves eternally worth it. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate to these crowds that just wanted to see another miracle. He's saying... That's not why I came, to be popular for miracles. I came to rescue you from yourselves, from your sin. Well, this illustration of building a tower, planning and preparing, makes it simple for us to begin making applications to us in our current situation. We have a desire to use our property for the glory of God to use it more effectively, but we need a plan. We need to count the cost. We don't want to start and get into this and realize we've made a huge mistake. We had no idea it was going to end up like this. No, the idea is you, you step back. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down? Don't pick up the tools. That's not what we need to do. We need to plan and prepare based on what? The desire to build the tower. We have a desire. We think it's a valid one. Now we need to do some planning, some counting of the cost. So the sermon today is, is really designed to be kind of a, a guide for the coming months. You know, we're going to be into the winter and the spring and summer still talking about details of 
getting this property kind of maximized for ministry use. And rather than that being tedious, we just now kind of ready our minds for thinking, okay, if we're going to build, let's sit down and plan and then go ahead and finish the project. At the conclusion of the sermon, I want to introduce with a few extra moments uh, the Growing Grace campaign. Our, our effort to focus on what it means for our church to minister more fully using even the stuff of buildings and parking spaces, but not primarily buildings and parking spaces. The idea of being stewards of those things and that stuff, but also being stewards of people and gifts and abilities that God has given for the common good of this church and for the good of those who do not yet know him. In order to lay all that out, I want us to examine a famous Old Testament building project. With the hopes of validating our goals for building and understanding what went into that project of old, we take as our example Solomon's temple. Jonathan kindly read from the Chronicles of the completion of the temple, and now they're bringing some of the, the stuff that had been saved from the tabernacle, the lampstands and dishes and things that the, the priests would use. And even then, the Ark of the Covenant was brought in with great fanfare. As we think of that temple, that incredible structure that no longer stands, it was destroyed by the Babylonians when they came in 605 and 597 and 586 and those three waves of attack finally destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, uh, and carried most of Israel into captivity. But that building serves as a monumental example of purpose driving the building of this building. So I want to start with the purpose. I want to start with, number one, the use of the building. What went on in this massive project? What was it for? The use of the building. And what I want us to see is that the ultimate use of the building was for the glory of God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, David is urging Solomon to continue on this building project. Remember, David had a desire to build, and God told him, no, you're not the man for the job. Your, your ministry, your lifespan has been one of conquering and building the kingdom. But I want Solomon, this great son of peace, that would be a foreshadowing of Christ to come. I want him as that king of peace to be the one who establishes the house of God. But David, exhorting Solomon, says, Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into a house built for the name of the Lord. The glory of the Lord was on display in Solomon's temple. It was first and foremost a monument to his glory. 
Now, like our houses of worship and even our worship, it is secondary to the glory of God. That is what it's for. Now, the glory of God is expressed in, secondly, the worship of God. Now, I say that it's expressed in our worship because the glory of God is not at stake. It's not as if some people refuse to worship, then God's not glorious. Of course he is. They've just refused to see it. If worship is done badly, it doesn't mean that God's glory lacks. No, God's glory is. And the temple was built for the glory of God. But that glory was expressed in the worship of God. Second Chronicles chapter 5 echoes what we heard uh, this morning. When the priests came out of the holy place, having put the ark of the covenant in that place, the priests came out and presented themselves, the Levitical singers, Asaph, that author of several of the Psalms, Heman, Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, lyres. They stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when that song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, namely, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, the house, this house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Yes, it's about glory, but glory expressed in our worship, in music, in thanksgiving, in praise. The use of the building was for the glory of God through the worship of his people. But there's something else that I want us to note in the use of this building. It was designed to present in part and to foreshadow the fullness of the gospel of God. In 2 Chronicles 5, the ark is brought into the temple. It was a box, fancy box, but just a wood box covered in gold. But it represented the place of God's presence among his people. When you read this whole temple building account, it's in the Kings and it's in the Chronicles. At one point, when all this stuff is being assembled and Solomon is dedicating the temple, he says this in the form of a question. Would God dwell among men on earth? And the answer is yes. Yes, in part in the cloud of his glory, but then in fullness, John 1. Fullness of grace and glory in the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Even in the ark being put into that temple, with all of the celebration, with all the trumpets blaring and singers singing, and cloud of smoke filling the temple so that they couldn't even go about the rest of their worship service, for a moment. 
in all of that, we are reminded this is but a shadow of things to come. God would dwell on earth through Jesus of Nazareth and would provide fully for the salvation of his people. The ark hearkens us to think of thoughts of gospel, of good news. God would dwell among us. And that dwelling was for the purpose of atoning sacrifice. Again, all through the building and dedication of the temple. In 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, in Kings, we hear about the temple sacrifices. Not the formalized ones from the Levitical law necessarily, but massive numbers of sacrifices that would express the worship of God's people in gratitude for his provision for a covering for their sin. God would provide a remedy for sin. 1 Kings 8 tells us that at the dedication of this temple, God's glory on display in the worship of his people, 22,000 oxen are sacrificed. 120,000 sheep. And when we consider the general format of cutting the throat of these animals and bleeding them out, we can understand how the prophets, when speaking spectacularly about the ruin of a city, would speak of blood flowing in streams away from Mount Zion. Because this many sacrifices would leave those priests who walked out onto the Temple Mount in pristine white garments would leave the Temple Mount with no white garment showing anymore. Massive amounts of sacrifice. But why? To show us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And that all these people for hundreds of years were waiting, were looking forward to that one spotless lamb. And it's why John the Baptist's words are so stunning when he sees Jesus come over the hill towards the river Jordan and says, Behold the Lamb of God, who, not who takes away our sin for one day and there's going to have to be sacrifices again tomorrow, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'll bury your sin as in the depths of the sea, the prophet tells us. As far as the east is from the west, another prophet says. These sacrifices remind us that God would provide a remedy for sin. The ark reminds us that he would dwell among us. Somehow, in God coming to dwell among us, he would make a provision for sin. That's the person of Jesus. That's the good news of the Christian message. And so the use of this building, this temple, was for the glory of God, expressed in the worship of God, proclaiming the gospel of God. If those kind of ideas and goals can in some way be seen in our vision for spending money to, to develop parking spaces and a building, if our goals can be worthy goals, space to worship, to fellowship, to celebrate, to teach, to evangelize, then we are right to think about how to use what we have 
for the glory of God. Be that the structure you live in or the structure we gather to worship in. We are right to think about how do I use what God has given me for his glory, for his worship, to make the gospel known. What do you have for funds, for a yard, for a home, for a job? Use it all for the glory of God as you worship him, desiring to make the good news known. That's the use of the building. Now step back and think what came before that. Well, it was the construction of the building. The construction of the building. Again, we'd have to read Chronicles, multiple chapters in 1 Chronicles and 2nd, and then Kings to get all of the story. But I want to just highlight a few details about the construction of the building. It wasn't a huge building. Some of you have been inside the, the gym next door. Some of you, well, all of you have at least seen it from the outside. It's 50 feet wide and 100 feet long. Uh, now, with that in mind, the inside dimensions of Solomon's temple were 30 feet wide and 90 feet long. It's 45 feet high, which may be what that gym is, maybe a little less. So considering that height, but a little narrower and a little shorter. 30 feet wide, 90 feet long, 45 feet high. Now it had two major divisions. The first 60 feet of space was the holy place. Lampstands, table of showbread, altar of incense, perpetually burning as a sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord, and then a wall, or in Herod's temple, a veil that would divide the holy place from that last 30 by 30 space called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where no priest went, where only the high priest once a year would go to make a sacrifice, sprinkling blood on the Ark of the Covenant. So the building is not large, but it was elaborate, and it was perfect. Three stories lined two sides and the back with storage and dwelling places for priests. The floors and the walls are made of stone, covered in cedar planks, and overlaid in gold. Maximum craftsmanship. You'll, you'll get bogged down reading in Kings and Chronicles about Things like lily work, high up on the two pillars that stood on either side of the front doors of the temple where no one would ever see, and yet elaborate work was done, masonry work, uh, because every detail mattered. It's estimated in current dollars based on the talents that are recorded in Kings and Chronicles that a building 45 feet high, 90 feet long, and 30 feet wide was estimated at current dollars of $200 million. Nothing was spared in communicating the transcendent perfection and holiness of God in Solomon's temple. Maximum craftsmanship was required. I think this is probably where we got measure twice and cut once, all right? Because the scriptures tell us in 1 Kings 6, that on the construction of the actual temple, on that site, there could be no sound of cutting, no sound of hammers, no sound of 
pry bars massaging things into place. Every stone was cut elsewhere, every cedar plank was cut elsewhere and brought in perfection to its place and laid. This kind of construction required first a lot of workers. In 1 Chronicles 22:15, David says to Solomon, "You have an abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron. So arise and work, and the Lord be with you. Much like Exodus, where we read of particular names that are given to us, that were skilled in design, in building. Because when God told Moses to build a box and cover it with gold, it was really important. God was going to dwell in that ark at that Ark of the Covenant. It was so special that you remember the story years later, David mistakenly allows them to move the Ark on a cart instead of carrying it with the poles. And Uzzah was walking along the Ark, and because of his deep devotion to the things of the Lord, when that Ark hit a bump and rattled and it started to fall off the cart, Uzzah steadied it with his hands and God struck him dead because no one was to touch the Ark. That's how important that box was. And God gave details for how to make it. And he names names and says, have this guy make it because he knows wood and have this guy do the gold detail. And here we see it again, this emphasis on, on those who are skilled to do this. And it reminds us of something that not everyone wants to craft a sermon and get up and talk with words. But there are other gifts and abilities in the body that God is going to use. God didn't let Moses make the ark. Moses had his gift. He had his calling. God had someone else to do that work. So I know we gather every Sunday and I get what little spotlight there is up here. Or any other teacher in a Sunday school class. Or maybe a couple coordinators or deacons may, may be thought of as, oh, they're the ones doing the work. But that's just not how God looks at it. Because the work of his kingdom is not just Sunday morning work. It's all week long work. And some of you know how to build boxes and would be good probably at melting and, and overlaying things with gold. Your mind works that way. You engineer and you build and you, and you can envision. And God needs those people ultimately to facilitate his glory being displayed. Now, you could say to build a box or to build a building, to put some stones together, but that's not how God saw it. Remember, back to point number one, what was this building for? The name of the Lord, the glory of God. So all that cutting of stone and knowing how to plane a cedar plank to perfection and work with gold, all of that stuff mattered to God, and he gifted people to know how to do that. So take heart. Your gift doesn't have to look like someone else's. It just has to be on the same altar of sacrifice as everyone else's. It takes a lot of workers. And again, we comb through the numbers and we find probably 200,000, some of them conquered people, slaves, and some of them the people of Israel. That's a lot of workers to build this building that's a little smaller than our activity center. But that's the attention that it required. And it took a lot of time. 
A lot of workers and a lot of time. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts, and according to all its specifications, Solomon was seven years in building this. So by the time the Temple Mount was constructed, and then a building on top of that, seven years of labored perfection and worship. That's the construction of the building. It matters because our gifts matter in the service of the king. Now we back up from the construction. We saw the use of the building. We kind of back up and we consider its construction. And now I want to take one more step back and consider the planning of the building. The planning of the building. And it starts with a vision for use. That's where we were in Luke 14. If anyone desires to build a tower... Okay, there's the desire. There's the vision. We need something. We need to rebuild the Tower of Siloam that collapsed. Our vineyards being nibbled at by pests and thieves. We need the tower so we can oversee it. If anyone desires to build the tower, or in 1 Chronicles 17, David has this desire to build, and Nathan says, do all that is in your heart. And then God pulls Nathan aside that night and says, actually not. Let him prepare, but he's not going to build it. So Nathan goes back to David and said, the desire is good, work on the plans, but you're not going to be the one to build it. But it starts with this vision for use. Why would we spend money on anything? Personally or for the church? Well, hopefully it's because we have some kind of purpose. We're aiming for something a vision for its use. But then planning includes a gathering of resources. 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 14, David says to Solomon, with great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these, you must add. It's going to take resources. Workers, dollars, materials, labor. It takes a lot of resources. All of that needs to be planned for. Lest you get into a project and you can't complete it because you didn't do the hard work of planning a vision for its use, a gathering of its resources, and then also see that planning demands a diligence of detail. By the time David is done talking to Solomon, he's, he's handing over the blueprints. First Chronicles 28, verse 11. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries for dedicated gifts, plans for the divisions of the priests and of the Levites, and all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, for all the vessels for the service in the house of the Lord. And he goes on to list more and more of the details of the plan. And finally, in verse 19, he says... 
All this God made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. Seemingly endless details. There's Solomon holding all these scrolls for all these plans and details. David says, all the materials are piling up. You'll have to add to that. The workers are ready. Here's the plans. My work is done. Yours is just beginning. Well, we too are in the beginning of the planning stage. But as reflected in these many chapters and in almost tedious details, we understand preparation is wise stewardship. Not only wise as in it's a good choice, but it's, it's the right thing to do. It would be a failure that would produce the mockery in Jesus' teaching. Ah, look, they didn't plan, so it didn't end up well. They weren't able to finish. In contrast, we see this great Old Testament project where planning and construction led to those beautiful pictures that we love, the presence of God, the provision of salvation by atoning sacrifice. Those great theological themes were served by long, boring meetings of planning and long, hot days of construction. It wasn't just for planning's sake or construction's sake. It was for the gospel's sake. So here's the point of what could be a pretty mundane kind of almost unspiritual kind of feeling study of the Old Testament temple. Why do we look at this stuff? Because I want us to understand this principle. It's the conclusion on your notes. Detailed planning, we see that in the text. And physical construction, we see that in the text. Serve gospel mission. It's not the sum total of gospel mission. Otherwise, the bigger our buildings, the better. The more people in your church, the better. But that's not the measure. We're taking this world's stuff, all our funds and materials, and we're saying the planning stage and the construction stage, they serve their purpose. And their purpose must ultimately be rooted in gospel mission. So it's true on a large scale. We can plan for months, maybe construct for even more months, but those efforts should serve gospel mission. They should serve some spiritual purpose. We should be able to go to the scriptures and say, here's what the church is and what it's supposed to do. Do parking spaces and buildings help us to do that? If so, we stamp them as valid. But if we start coming up with ideas and we say, how does that serve this purpose? We might say, you know what? At least at this church, we're not going to do those things. We don't see them as great tools for gospel communicating, for disciple making. So the great question that lingers here among us is, when these projects are, are revealed, we ask ourselves, would that serve the purpose of the church to be making disciples? Would that help us in some way? Could they be tools? And if so, then we 
hear David telling Solomon, listen, there's a lot of stuff there. You're going to have to add more to it. It's going to take a lot of work. Hopefully our project won't be seven years in the, in the doing. But keep your eye on the end goal. What will that be a place for? So planning and construction serve mission, serve purpose, serve vision. It's true on the large scale, building church buildings, but let me also help you see that it's true on, the, on, a, on a small scale. You prepare by looking at your calendar and texting an invitation to your neighbors for a cookout. Then you're going to get busy with the doing. You're going to find some ground beef on sale to make some burgers or find some pork tenderloin or something. And you're going to shop and then you're going to fix a meal. But it's serving your mission. So the planning is good. It has its place. The, the doing, the working is good. It's ha- it has its place. But its place finds its definition in why? Because you're trying to build a bridge to your neighbor. You're trying to show them the love of God. You want to have a conversation with them about the good news. And so the planning and the doing serve the mission. It's just the way it works. God has given us stuff, houses and cars and bank accounts, interests, skills, hobbies. But what we have should serve our purpose. Why are we here? That's back to Luke 14. Because we're followers of Jesus Christ. We exist to make him known. So take what we have and and, and sacrifice it all to the mission, to the purpose. doesn't mean we give it all away. It means we use it. We maximize it. Because it's required in stewards that we be found faithful with what we've been given. How will we use it to advance the kingdom of God? Heavenly Father, bless your word to us as we seek to do what we see before us as our next step of stewardship. In a sense, we've been down this path before, but again, we're asking for help. So bless us with wisdom, with faith, with unity, with purpose, for the glory of your name. Amen.